and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. I'm Jacob Graves. And I'm Hunter Cates. On today's show, three showed up to review Five Came Back, the new Netflix documentary about five famous Hollywood directors who served in the armed forces during World War II. Then, I've got a recap of week seven of the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... So nothing really of note happened with movies this week, so we really don't have anything to discuss. Nope, not a thingy dingy. Not a thing. Nothing that I noticed, no, uh uh-uh. Just kidding. There was the Star Wars Episode Eight, The Last Jedi trailer, which I don't think it broke the internet. Teaser Teaser trailer, trailer. excuse me. I don't think it broke the internet. There there seemed to be a subdued, like, uh, comfort in it, Mm -hmm. though. Right. I feel like it was received as, like, the way any other trailer people are really excited about is received but it didn't transcend that it wasn't kim kardashian's ass level of internet breakage no is that a good thing or a bad thing well i think i mean at least for me part of it was it was and i i said this to you guys when when it came out i was walking around a mall with a stroller trying to keep my kid asleep and like i just been sent like eight links and so i'm watching it and maybe maybe it was partially that but it was there was nothing that I disliked about it, but it also there was nothing that like got me like, oh, my gosh, fired up. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And partially that's probably that it's a teaser trailer, but it's also like it's about what I would expect, given what we already know mm-hmm. about what the film is going to be like. There wasn't a whole lot of because I feel like e- even the first Force Awakens teaser trailer, there was a lot of stuff that was just like you could sort of dig in and analyze. Right. Like, okay, we see we see X-Wings and we see this and we see that. There wasn't too much of that here. Well, didn't the first teaser trailer have that big giant downed spaceship? And so you saw the epic sense of scale. I, see, I'm, 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 go, I'm going. Spaceship, Jake? Spaceship? What is it? The Star Destroyer? What, is that what it is? Get it together, really man. Know. Get it together, man. <laughs> it was okay. it a Saturn V rocket? Then I don't really know what it is. Think about where you are right now. Yeah. Mm. Was that the very first? I can't recall. I, I halfway think I, that there was one beforehand. Was there? I I thought the the first one was like a minute and a half, and you saw. Yeah, I can't remember. If heard, that was the you, second or first? I think. Was, I think it was the first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it matters not. I, I think it does matter because you saw that epic sense of scale. That promised things to come. Where this movie was, this, this trailer didn't didn't promise much. Well, you got some. I think it was X wings crashing in in like a desert. They weren't X wings. They were. Or, I don't know what they. They were, were spaceships, guys. They were, they were some rebel spaceships, were spaceships of sorts. But having after Rogue One and after Episode Seven, it it, it just felt like okay, we've seen this. So there wasn't anything refreshing about it. Well, mm-hmm. but there there also wasn't anything disappointing. That, that's mm-hmm. where it's no. like, I feel like I don't, I still don't know really what the movie's about. And honestly, I'm fine with that. Right. Well, okay. So hot take. Uh, I think that this movie could have been the first movie in history to not release any trailer. And people would still and go. Still, yeah. And still open up. And I kind of, a part of me wishes that would have happened. What, the, what if the, all their budget would have been on like three second trailers that showed in between every single other thing on earth? Yeah, uh, just just uh, Luke saying something cryptic. cryptic. Gosh, if if they didn't release a trailer, I can only imagine because uh, Jake, you're aware of this, Hunter. I'm not sure if you are. Dan Harmon, you know they they just on April Fool's Day released the first episode of season three of Rick and Morty. Dan Harmon 
has been inundated for months with people who, no matter what he tweets, would be, oh, when are you going to release Rick and Morty? When's season three Rick and Morty coming out? I, I can only imagine that if they didn't release the trailer, Ryan Johnson's Twitter, which he's fairly active on, um, would be eight times worse than that. A billion times worse there than that. There would have been a nerd, nerd vasion, a nerd yeah. vasion of Disney World. They would have taken over. <laughs> they would have gone to Disney World and taken it over. Just just Tuscan Raiders <laughs> sitting in until they get their trailer. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, overweight Tuscan Raiders covered in cheese snacks. The worst <laughs> kind. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think th- I think that's kind of this is where we're going with Star Wars right now because episode seven had the nostalgia factor had the, we haven't seen this in a long time. Mm -hmm. And now that, as I said, for the past two years, we've gotten Star Wars movies. It lacks that, that freshness about it. Well, but I, I also don't think it's that that's sort of my point is it's not like it tried for something and missed it. It's, I think it's very intentionally holding a whole lot back. Mm-hmm. That said, they did show a scene of the the thing that stood out to me was they showed it almost looked like a little painted constellation or like a cave painting on the ground. And they were talking about the force, mm-hmm. which leads me to believe that this the next the remaining two pictures are going to go much deeper into the idea of what the force is. Are we comfortable with that? Uh, I mean, my my initial reaction is no. Um, I, because just given the history of trying to explain the force, anytime they try to go beyond, like it's, it's this broad thing, it gets a little hairy. Well, and I, th- I think that happens with, I think that's a very modern conceit to try and explain everything and you're nearly going to disappoint people. But, but I also kind of feel like if you're making these, you know, seven, eight and nine, you kind of have to, because Luke was the one to bring balance to the force. And so you can't, you also can't avoid that. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know, because in, anytime you start explaining the force, it feels like that old video, the guy trying to explain the Internet, how it's not a series of tubes. It's like not a big truck. It's a series of tubes. It's like you yeah. don't really want to know any level of detail in any way you try to explain this abstract construct. It's not going to be as good as it as it is in people's heads. It's kind the, of magic. And don't try to science the magic out of this. Exactly. That what were the first three and by first three, I mean, episode one, two, three, were those ultimately face planted was that they took everything too seriously. And I would fret that these next ones are going to do the same because we've we've gone over this a million times. So it made uh what made four, five, and six so much fun was just that, is that they didn't take themselves they, that seriously. They lived in a world that felt like it existed to infinity, like it, mm-hmm. it and and you you only needed to know enough to know what was immediately around you. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, but I'm just saying, like, they've kind of painted themselves in a corner here where they, they're saying, okay, well, we're going to expand the story, but Luke is still in it and, and all of these. So, like, okay, how do you address the fact that obviously there's – there's still Sith out there or Sith. Right. Uh, clearly he didn't quite bring balance to the force. So maybe it's, you know, it's just, it's a messy thing that you have to, you have to address in some way. You can't just pretend like it, it, you know, what happens in and what's said in uh, the original trilogy doesn't exist. Either. Right. I still just really, I mean, when they came into the original trilogy, they had a conceit and it, the conceit was there are Jedis and they have powers. And then they told good stories with that. You know, they never addressed the conceit. That's you all know? they and needed. It, yeah. No, that's and, it. And, and, and the first three movies, those prequels were just like, let's explain the conceit. 
And it's like, what are you doing? Just and now make a we're movie. And now we're potentially doing that all over again. I yeah. hope and, they're and smart that's... enough that it's set up and it's in place and it's building on the other stuff that we don't have to address all the why of it. Now, Let's speak- tell a good story. Now, speaking of explain all the why of it, it is one thing for George Lucas, the creator of the series, to explain the why. But is it arrogant and or pretentious for people who are not George Lucas to try and explain what the force is? No. Because George Lucas, because George Lucas sold it to them, and he knew this is what they were going to do. So, look, no. if some, right, I, I, I would say that George Lucas has every right, unless some, somebody gave him like a billion dollars, not to ever say anything about it again. <laughs> oh, oh no, they did Wait, that. Crap. Okay. No, yeah, no. They, whoever gave him a billion dollars gets to make the rules now. Yeah, they can. They can do it. Like it, it's not sacred. It is a. It is a extremely successful property that. You know, whatever. We'll see what happens. Well, you can draw whatever walls around this franchise you want, and there will still be people with walls around the original three who say, this is Star Wars to me, and I don't accept anything else. And there will be people with walls off of these latest three who believe all the extended universe books and all that. This is going to be the most fragmented franchise. It's going to be like religions where you just pick a camp that you're in and people who believe like you and those <laughs> right. are the message boards you go to. And that's that. You know what? I kind of like that. And as much as I wish we could end on that, because that's a great way to end, I do have to also mention how cool it was the very end of this trailer when Luke said, um, it was Luke who said the Jedi need to end. Because yeah. the term the last Jedi sounds, you know, ominous. And you think it might be the bad guys that are going to end whatever. No, I kind of I kind of figured that was where, like, he seems like a sort of jaded melancholy. I mean, but honestly, isn't that sort of where Obi-Wan Kenobi was in A New Hope? Like, it's, I don't know. Well, Maybe you guys took it that way. I took it like the Jedi were going to be Butch and Sundance. And the last frame of this movie was going to be two of them running out from hiding and just freeze frame. I, I didn't. I, I didn't think it would be Luke who and who want. I figured it was going to be that there weren't going to be any more Jedi. That that there just weren't going to be any more born. I didn't think that it was going to be Luke actively participating in the Jedi ending, which we didn't get from this trailer necessarily. But that's what it kind of suggests. I, I I agree. That's sort of how I how I read it. And you know, he's the one that brings balance to the force. So who knows. And yeah. it, it promises uh, some deep stuff going on in it. Let's hope they actually go into, you know, the ideas of why that's going to happen and not just like a three line or one speech like this is what I got to come to the end. And now let's do stuff. Well, opposed to Hunter's uh, machination for zero trailers, I don't think this is going to be the last one. So probably not. No. We, I'm, I'm sure we will get several more before what is it, December 18th comes and, and we get the next installment in Star Wars. So stay tuned, and I'm sure we'll be talking about those down the road, too. But in the meantime, stick around as Chris, Jake, and I discuss Five Came Back, the new Netflix documentary. America stands at the crossroads of its destiny. In the early years of Hitler's rise, moviegoing had become an essential part of American culture. But Americans did not realize the extent of the threat Hitler posed. He understood cinema could be put in the service of propaganda. Americans realized we can't win this war. These guys are going to beat us. Western civilization was at stake, and we're going to fight until we win. Five filmmakers wanted to respond as so many millions of men and women responded. They chose to serve. These documentaries were powerful for American audiences. The footage proved that the enormity of the task was worth it. We had an enormous story to tell. 
the greatest heroes, the greatest villains on the world stage. This was real filmmaking. This is the people's war. It is our war. Journalist Mark Harris's book, Five Came Back, a story of Hollywood in the Second World War, chronicles the experiences of five big-time Hollywood directors who joined the armed services after the Imperial Japanese Navy attacked Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. Actually, that's not totally true. John Ford was already a commander in the U.S. Navy by the time, but William Wyler, John Houston, George Stevens, and Frank Capra were soon to enlist. Harris's book explores their work churning out patriotic propaganda during the war and the way their experiences over there changed their work when they came back home. Now, Netflix and Lahan Buzero, the prolific documentarian behind hundreds of behind-the-scenes and making-of docs for DVDs, has brought this story to the small screen as a three-part documentary miniseries. While it's not quite as comprehensive as the 500-plus pages found in Harris's book, it still accomplishes something the written word can't, by actually showing audiences the work that these five filmmakers produced for the United States military. Buzero also brings in five contemporary directors to help tell the story. Each is given a specific director to focus on. Steven Spielberg takes Weiler's tale. Francis Ford Coppola finds a kindred spirit in writer-turned-director John Huston. Lawrence Kasdan discusses George Stevens. In a surprising selection that ultimately makes a whole lot of sense, Paul Greengrass tells John Ford's story. And Guillermo del Toro is certifiably giddy as he considers Capra's contributions to the war effort. So guys, I'm curious. Did the documentary's three-hour runtime satisfy your curiosity for this unique cross-section of world history and film history? Or did Buzero leave you longing for more? And furthermore, of the five contemporary filmmakers interviewed, which was your favorite? You know what, gentlemen? I'm going to say something that I don't think either one of you want to hear, but I was disappointed in Five Came Back. And I'll tell you why. I think it was summed up in what you, in your intro there, Chris, is Buzero was a uh, DVD behind the scenes documentarian, which I yeah. didn't know. I just found out as you as you mentioned it there. And even though I'll gobble up DVD behind the scenes documentaries like they're candy, um, as if as a feature length three hour miniseries documentary, what I wanted from this movie, it was ultimately just too superficial. Documentaries, great documentaries, either make you think or they make you feel. This one did neither for me. As I said, it, it just felt about as superficial as a behind-the-scenes documentary you get on a DVD. Yeah, I, I want to say I'm going to say a lot of good stuff about it, but at at the same time, it felt like something I would maybe flip on the History Channel and see. Yeah. It, it didn't feel like a transcendent documentary or anything like that. Yeah, it, it felt like the documentary to a you watch a movie, you watch, you, like the Five Came Back was a narrative movie. And then you're like, oh, that was really interesting. I'm going to watch this documentary special feature. Yeah, or, was, or Five Came Back was like a TV series. And then this is like the the little like odds and ends right. pieces to it or something like that. Yeah, like I honestly, I'm I'm not that disappointed. I think I'm, I probably enjoyed it a little more than you did. But I do think especially like my my whole thinking on this going in was or, or coming out of the, the first episode was like, why did they break this? Why did they feel the need to break this into three parts? Um, because if I'm a general like Netflix consumer who isn't like super excited to learn about this, I'm not going to go any further because I think, I think they do each episode gets better. Mm -hmm. And I think the third actually like finally finds its stride and probably because you see, you know, the doc out footage and some of the most emotional stuff. And I think that is probably what's most effective here, but it would be effective just by the pure virtue of showing it. Um, I, I, I agree with you like a whole lot. Like it, it feels a lot like a, 
like Jake said, a history channel sort of thing, or like a, like a sort of watered down Ken Burns. And Mm -hmm. I like, I, I think, I don't know. It's, it's odd because I feel like someone else crafting it. I mean, even one of these five directors kind of taking the helm or like one of the, one of the things that came to mind watching it was like, well, what if, you know, Tom Hanks has, had been involved in, in several sort of from earth to the moon and, uh, several mm-hmm. you know, HBO, like what if someone like that was involved in, in this, like it could what if have, it were an HBO documentary instead of a Netflix it documentary. Have, yeah. It yeah. could have been so much more interesting. I think it's funny you say that because probably 30 minutes into the first episode, when I understood that all the, all the interviewees that they would have, have all had already been interviewed. Yeah. You know, and it popped up already. I was like, where the hell Tom Hanks? Where Tom Hanks at? Where, well, where's Martin Scorsese? Like, yeah. and I would like to see that as is one of the reviews. Where Martin's? Where Where Martin Scorsese? Where Tom Hanks at? Um, <laughs> but actually, Chris, you asked um, which of the contemporary filmmakers did I enjoy the most? Uh, I'm going to say that actually that was one of my big issues with it. It was is way too Hollywoody. It, you um, think? Yeah, interviewing directors opposed to interviewing historians. Mm, okay. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or potentially, I mean, my God, if they found people who had served alongside mm-hmm. these guys or even just served in the same area, I mean, sh- Normandy, people who actually were at Normandy, I would have much rather heard from them. Or or just the people, the cameramen or, or the, yeah. more from the actual directors. No, you know, I, yeah, someone... I, ideally, I would have liked to have heard from people from the directors, like you said, Jake. And there was some of that, but you get some more of that, of that archive, but more yeah. of that. Um, this just rested too much of its of its momentum on people who never really even knew these guys, and they were just speaking from after the fact. Yeah, like I, I really like John Ford. John Ford made a lot of good movies. Well, he served in the war, and and that's that, that's sort of why I ask because I feel like like as much as I love Spielberg, there's only maybe a couple of things that I found interesting really that that he said, and one of those is yeah, I watch. Uh, the best years of our lives once a year. Mm-hmm. Like that has nothing to do. Yeah, and with, I already knew that. So yeah. let's see. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah it, the best thing you learned about the documentary on these five directors was that one of your other favorite directors watches one of these movies a lot. Mm-hmm. No, see. So I, I thought Guillermo del Toro was great. He I was, thought, the, he was, and, the and best it was because he brought passion about both Frank Capra and the subject at hand. I mean, and if you, you know, if you look at his, uh, sort of his Spanish trilogy that he is yet to complete with uh, Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. Like it makes sense that like he he kind of he likes war history and he likes uh, film history, and so uh, it, it makes sense that maybe that he is the one who's most compelling here. But um, it it's still it's not quite. And and I wondered if part of that is like it's a little too much talking head. It's a little too much just mm-hmm. like say what you want and whatever, not like, and that's where I think if you had a little more structure to it, because basically what this, what this entire mini series is, is okay. We're going to interview these five directors and get whatever they say, put it in. And then we're going to find archive footage of the five directors, uh, talking about their experience in their own words, that sort of thing, what, whatever we can put that in. And then we'll have Meryl Streep, uh, kind of stitch it all together with a script where we need to. Right. And and that's another thing is Meryl Streep didn't do a whole lot for me. Her her delivery was it was overrated. Um oh, but um <laughs> but anyway, no, her delivery was just very dry and and straightforward. I would have liked like a Harrison Ford or Clint Eastwood in this, some hmm. rough and tumble gritty guy. 
It was, I, I mean, it, it just, but it, it felt like it, it follows suit with the overall aesthetic, which is just like good enough. Well, I think the mm-hmm. overall, there's many ways you could have told the story, Many, and they decided to hang their hat on just let's have Hollywood people talk about Hollywood people. And I think that was a mistake. It pro- prohibited this from being as compelling as it could have been. Mm-hmm. Because I felt like only five voices were telling me about this. Right. Yeah. And there's so, so many more directors. people. Yeah, so many more people who had something to say. Well, that's, that's the other thing that, like, I think on its face, like, that sounds interesting. Like, the Masters of Today talking about the Masters of Yesteryear. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, especially the way that they broke it out, like I think, I think it's hindered by the fact that mm-hmm. each director is told is sort of like, okay, well, William Wyler goes to um, Steven Spielberg, and Frank Capra goes to Guillermo del Toro, and they they cross over a little bit, but not too much. Mm-hmm. And even like I, so the the other director that I liked a bit, not nearly as much as as del Toro is. I liked Greengrass just in he tried to bring a little more to it. And uh, I think partially because he, you know, they're doing documentary work. He started out and I think he says as much. He started out as a documentarian before and you still have it. You, you know, you feel mm-hmm. that aesthetic mm-hmm. throughout his films. That's that's sort of why he has this immediacy to right. um, the, the films he makes. But still, it's like it's not enough. I, I like listening to, for example, Paul Greengrass talk about John Ford. I don't like listening to Paul Greengrass try and explain John Ford's war record because I don't really feel like he knows. <laughs> yeah. So so let me let me pose this. Uh, a lot of these documentaries that they talk about are on Netflix. OK, Yeah, a good portion uh, of them. Yeah. And, and you should seek them out and watch them. But what if this were presented a completely different way instead of being a traditional documentary the way we see it? What if it were a so, sort of like a playlist on Netflix where it started off with something up top saying, you know, here's the background of these directors, and then maybe a segment, you know, um, uh, Greengrass on Ford, and then you watch Battle of Midway. Oh, so you're describing Filmstruck. Yes, I'm describing <laughs> Filmstruck. But Netflix has all these rights, and they have the footage, and they commission yeah. this document. Like, it, they could have done something truly unique. I like that as an addition. I don't like it as a substitute, because I would have rather Five Came Back just been better. I, oh, yeah. I I would as well, and I'll just say I I have picked up and put down the book several times over the past several years, and I think it's definitely worth a read. Um, I mean, I I don't know how I'm uh, honestly I I'm not terribly far into it. Um, now I restarted the last time that I, I picked it back up because it's just been so long. But it is it is fascinating and compelling. Um, it's it's a great read if you like film history and it it gets at something that the documentary really doesn't and i think it's because of what you're talking about hunter where it's hollywood directors talking about these these guys and they just don't have the information like Mm -hmm. there was so much that i found compelling in just like just the introduction of frank capra in the book um where he's painted as this very sort of sort of wishy-washy uh, sort of guy who's on top of his game in Hollywood, but politically very vague and very um, undefined. And how this sort of actually his effort in World War II helped to uh, help to kind of carve out what his uh, worldview was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you don't really you don't really get that. You don't really get these directors as characters too much. Yeah. And I, that's that's exactly what I was thinking as well is they're pretty much indistinguishable from each other. Frank Capra is indistinguishable in this documentary from John Huston. 
and to make those two people to take those two powerhouse personalities or John Ford too, but to just make them the same. That's a major flaw, particularly over three hours. I, I think it's interesting that you bring up Houston only because I, I found something to latch on to with the fact that they chose Coppola for Houston, because I think, um, as I said in the intro, like there is a kindred spirit sort of thing there in that uh, Houston, you know, he was, he was almost a Hemingway light, sort of sort of guy who was looking for adventure and looking for um uh for all this and, and it's but it's more subtext than than actual like right uh they actually getting anything out of out of what's being said or presented it's just like connecting dots between the, what what they're what they have on screen you didn't even really need to describe it was basically just okay now we're going to talk about film director a and now yeah. we're going to talk about film director mm-hmm. b and you're just yeah. thinking no these are each very very different people mm-hmm. and very and each one is fascinating and there's things i would have even liked to know like i get that capra made the why we fight the seven part but yeah it didn't go into detail enough for me on like how was it made? Was he overseeing it because he was compiling this stuff? Was he in the editing room or did he have like a final cut type say on it? How much did the military influence what could be shown? They gave little examples, but they I never felt like I understood their process during the war, which is something I felt like they could have covered a lot better. I, I get that he was like in control of these other guys, but sometimes it felt like he was over all the other divisions and sometimes it felt like he was on his own yeah i think he was in charge yeah he was he was kind of the head honcho of of sorts which that's a that's a compelling dynamic that wasn't really explored yeah and i mean he was doing his own thing but he was also sort of point man Mm -hmm. i guess is is the best way and 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 you got to imagine that the egos involved in that situation would have been a fascinating story which they only briefly touch upon it's not really or um who's the was it the fox uh Uh, zanuck yeah yeah, that mm-hmm. I mean, they only barely touch on the relationship between Zanuck and Ford, mm-hmm. which would have been much, very. I mean, that would have been worth mining for its own. But, but let's put it this way: I would watch the Zanuck and Ford in Africa movie. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't even care how true it is. Just that is a great dynamic that I'd like to see explored. Yeah. All right, let's come up with two. Let's come up with some ways to potentially fix this. I'll throw out my ideas. Um, one idea, Chris, you mentioned that three was too much. You think t- doing three documentaries was too much? No, no, no. I, I think, or just I think, arbitrary. if you're going to make it three hours, make it one. Make it one. Don't make it three episodes. Because what I, okay, what I, okay. what I meant there is, if like I'm just casual, like, oh, here's here's the thing about Hollywood directors and during World War Two, um, I'll watch the first one. The after the first episode, I'm not compelled enough to finish it. Right. I got gotcha. you. I, I think, I think it progressively gets better. Um, but not, not like to, and, and ultimately like I, I'm being pretty down on this. I did enjoy it. Like, and I felt by the end it was pretty moving, but it's, it's sort of an odd balance between, um, just what was, I mean, there, there's something so powerful just about the, the images of, you know, Normandy and Dachau and some of the things that these, that these guys captured that kind of speaks for itself so just showing it on screen is going to be compelling right um because anyway because one of my solutions would be break it up into five episodes and focus Mm -hmm. on each director sure the the hard part about that i think would be figuring out the order of it because uh, some of them do cross paths in the Uh, story but i i agree definitely and i i mean and or maybe it's like that's season and maybe they don't want to they probably wouldn't want to give it this much, but mm-hmm. 
do that as season one. And then season two is really like bring it all together in, in some, in some right. bigger way. Right. The, the it, other thing I thought with three episodes, I thought one was going to be like, here are these people. And they were mm-hmm. going to go into great depth about here's Ford, here's how he came up, here's the nah. movies he made, here was his worldview. Two was going to be like a big chunk of the war, and then the third one was going to be like here is how they were changed, here's what they did after, here was the reception, here's how it, you know. And that's kind of what I was expecting. The the visions felt so arbitrary. It was just like ah, we're done talking. Yeah, didn't the two ends with like D Day happened? Isn't that like I believe so? Yeah, and and then and then three basically picks up there and sort of like waffles a little bit there were, there was also a little bit of weird chronology with like when when they're talking about George Stevens in Africa and like he shows up and then they're done and it, I think it's it's the part where they have his diary entry about this damn war mm-hmm. and it feels like Stevens is done and then you find out oh no he's he goes to Europe and he you know does something else yeah yeah he does he does something else he does one of the like most terror you know documents one of the most terrifying parts of the war and but they don't they don't like push the ball along in a way that feels like okay we're going to more like it felt like his story had more or less ended there yeah and it and it hadn't even started yeah pretty exactly um okay solution two and but and of course we're talking in the land of hypotheticals so you know money doesn't matter what if this were a movie, like a narrative film instead of a documentary? Would it have been better? Could it have been better? Yeah, I think so. I, I thought about that, too. Somebody approaches this for the love of, like, how Scorsese approached uh, something like Hugo in my mind, which is a completely different movie. But he, you have to really, really love the subject and the directors and everything and make this really compelling piece. But it's a really broad subject. You would have to do a movie about one of these guys. It would have to be Capra's movie. Well, I'm saying it, it, it would have to be the almost the Hollywood director universe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I'm thinking something like a Band of Brothers kind of miniseries. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I'd watch that. Yeah, no, that would I could see a miniseries. Yeah. Um, I and and that also like would honestly thematically maybe be a better way to approach this because one of the things i found fascinating you know uh, let's uh put approach to the actual story aside the story itself is i think a very compelling a very interesting story that asks some some interesting questions as far as like uh once they sort of get in into everything like john ford um presents the battle of midway and it's a roaring success. And then you think everything's rolling and then there's, there's a bunch of hiccups. There's not like, it's not like everything that was produced was, uh, well received, but then also there's, there be very quickly begins to be this gray area of kind of the truth versus the effectiveness, the thing that is going to be effective to ultimately doing what they're trying to do, which is create patriotic propaganda. Right. Um, and, and that, see, that, that was something that I feel like could have been mined more is like, should, were these Hollywood directors even the right people to be doing what they were doing? Because some of them, um, got very in the weeds and like, oh, well, we gotta, we gotta restage everything and, and all that. And your, your idea of like a band of brothers sort of thing would give you so much more mm-hmm. opportunity to really explore that. And, 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 but then also at the same time mirroring it where you're, you're, telling a lie that gives you more of the truth of what happened. Okay, Chris, you just said something that kind of that kind of 
Makes it, you well, no, yeah, they're sending a tingle up my leg. Uh, it detour time. Not talking about the documentary. Do you guys feel that these guys, these five famous Hollywood directors, were not the right people for the job that they should have hired? documentarians instead the documentarians would have done a better job like a an american lenny reifenstahl i i don't think any of the films that any of the countries made in world war ii as documentaries were documentaries they were propaganda you needed someone to tell a story a story that maybe didn't even exist in the footage you needed someone to construct a narrative that maybe wasn't there as plainly as you would like it to be in a world that is shades of gray you needed somebody with experience of making things black and white Uh, The government hired exactly who they wanted to do these. We would like to see films from documentarians that tell the whole complex, you know, truth about World War II. But that was not the job in in 1942. All right. That's what I think. I think they were the right people. Because when you go and watch them, they are rah-rah, you know, buy war bonds. That's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah, I, I mean, I find it so hard to even even say just from a standpoint of they weren't sure exactly what it was that they were producing when they dove into it. It was just sort of like, we know we need to, A, make something that is going to appeal to troops and get troops excited, and then B, something that's going to appeal to the masses of uh, the country to get them to- Improve morale on Buy war bonds, yeah. yeah, do do all of that. So- I I think I mean the, it's almost a hindsight twenty twenty sort of question. Um, I think the uh, idea is smart in that, like, okay, we have these people who already know the craft, so let's allow them to do it. But it does like I I'm not surprised that uh, what they ultimately made you know came out to, to different uh, differing effects. Um, to both the troops and people on the home front. Um, I did, there, there was a quote from Guillermo del Toro about Capra that I found, uh, really interesting when he said, Capra takes a route that is unique in propaganda where he makes it folksy. And, um, I think that's actually something that is, you know, it's interesting because it's telling, and he's, he's talking about how he took instead of saying, okay, I'm going to show you what's happening on the front lines. He's uh, here. Del Toro is talking about where he actually took the propaganda of, um, of Italy, of Germany, of, you know, the, these other places and sort of turned it in on itself and used that as the thing to say, like, this is what we are fighting against. Right. He, he displayed that these are the barbarians at the gates. Yeah. And I, I think that's the sort of thing that you need someone like, uh, like a Capra who a, does like just understand how to pull at heartstrings and, and B has his uh, very Capra esque sort of worldview. Like it's, it's a very, uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a very fine tuned weapon to, to be able to astutely say, Oh, this is, this is the approach I need, I need to, to do to, uh, to be effective. Well, and weapons, a good word because describing Capra, I did enjoy that part of it. Uh, the part you're referring to is after he had watched triumph of the will by Lenny Reifenstahl yeah. in seeing uh, Nazi Germany, he was intimidated like, Oh my God, how are we going to beat these people? Yeah. And he was clever enough to decide, well, well, we'll use their own documentary footage and just again, portray them as scary monsters and we need to stop these guys. Yeah. And Brilliant. so, and so, well, and, and exactly he used, film as a weapon because he didn't say, well, how am I going to make something that's really entertaining and and, how, mm-hmm. and that people are going to like? He is saying, I need to use this footage as a weapon to defeat the enemy. 
and he and so he had a creative idea to do that i, I don't know guys is it that original to just cast nazis as the bad guys it seems overdone <laughs> he, yeah he was exactly he was he was the og <laughs> he, 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 he was the og on that yeah. um to to sort of spin off of your uh your prompt or do you have i mean what do you what do you think about um well actually i'm going to raise another question because this is touched on in the documentary john ford was already abusive of john wayne i but um he was even more so after the war because john wayne didn't serve yeah, yeah. would the five have been better served on the home front staying in america making Mrs. Miniverse style movies. That, that is the question I was that going to is, ask. Yeah. Is is like what is because I find a, a lot of the Hollywood, both Hollywood and British era uh, patriotic propaganda, very interesting and uh, compelling. Is maybe the wrong. Like it's I I I I'm very fascinated with what they were doing. I mean, you have people like Pal and Pressburg, you have Fritz Lang, you have Alfred Hitchcock. Um, a, a lot of folks sort of choosing to uh, bring up morale and bring up uh, awareness that way. And I I would be curious. I mean, I, it's something I, I guess I'd have to read up more about, but I'd be curious of, as to how much more effective that was than some of these misses. Well, because those documentaries could have been made anyway. They didn't necessarily be, need to be made by John Ford. Sure. Especially when you go and watch the Battle of Midway and you hear – some of the decisions they made for voiceovers and the script and it's they're very much made to play before other movies. They're not these even though the footage is fantastic, the the it's not a work of art. It's it's there there are little touches in the Battle of Midway, but I, I agree that it's it's less artful than it is uh trying to, you know, get get a kind of rousing feeling in in, in on the American home front. But I I honestly, I think a lot of that voiceover, as corny as it is, I think if you try to, you know, put yourself back in the shoes of, because his whole point is to try to make it feel like this is your neighbor. Yeah. And I think it would have been effective at the time. Like, even even if it's not super effective now. Here's my actual answer to your question, though, Hunter. Would it, would, would it have been better for them to have stayed and made patriotic movies, maybe in the short term, but for a country who went to war and came back to send its best directors also off to war to experience war, to come back and make the movies that they made when they came back, is the most important part of it. It's not necessarily the body of work they made during the war. It's the way that they were changed as people in the same way that the population had been changed. Right. They, they put their careers and their lives on the line. Um, they gave a quote to John Wayne, and you could even hear the shame in his voice whenever he was discussing how he didn't serve. But from a purely practical standpoint, I'm, I am not here to judge, but from, from a purely practical standpoint, it is hard to um, not see his point whenever he says, I was 40 years old. I mean, what good am I yeah. going in as a private just to go – John Wayne as going in as a private just to get killed? You know, but then you have someone like Jim, Jimmy Stewart who rose to the rank of brigadier general through his military crew and is a genuine hero. And so it, it's just you've got two sides of the of the coin on that. I mean, you wouldn't want to have said, well, what happened to John Wayne? Well, the Nazis killed him, you know, like, or, or worse. He just he just got shot, you know, or, you know, or like Patton got run over by a Jeep. That an American guy was driving. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Any number of arbitrary ways that people can get killed, uh, get killed in war. 
he was he he was he knew he was and he believed he was more valuable on the home front but and at the same was. time he was still he was still ashamed of it well and, and but maybe that is the answer is like it's great that we had you know the home front because there were there were still plenty being made it's not like it's not like all the directors went away and patriotic um you know these these fiction propaganda films weren't being like they were they were still happening it was i i think it was sort of what they were doing what these five were doing was sort of an unknown exploration um and and ultimately you see that in sort of how some stuff you know like like a lot of a lot of houston stuff just didn't fly just didn't work mm-hmm. um i mean it really seemed like you had uh bella midway seemed to be you know at least based on based on this uh, documentary seemed to be great. And then a, a bunch of sort of meandering things or things that wishy-washy. And then you've got the Memphis bell, which seemed to be very effective. And then uh, a lot of other little, not so great in there. Yeah. Well, then here's my question is you guys are more familiar with these documentaries than I am. And I think Jake, you've even seen most of them. Um, who would I you wouldn't say, say most? Well, who would you say did the best of the five from what you've seen? Both of you, who was the best at, at, at doing what they set out to do and what needed to be done? I don't know, but my impression always had been that Memphis Bell was particularly great. Uh, I haven't seen more than little bits of it. Um, so, But I feel like Weiler is the correct answer there. Now, Houston's um, Let There Be Light, is that what it's called? Yeah. Didn't come out until much, much later, so it's hard to judge it on the same. And that's a that's a difficulty. And yeah, Let There Be Light didn't come out until like the 80s. Mm-hmm. So the documentary actually, about PTSD before there's a name for it. Right. Yes. And which is actually a pretty remarkable... Like, so, as as has been said, most of these are on Netflix. I would suggest if you if you see uh, Five Came Back, definitely check out a, at least a few of these. Memphis Bell, Let There Be Light, uh, Battle of Mid- I'm bet And some of these are only like eighteen minutes, thirty mm-hmm. minutes, so they're they're pretty quick watches as well. My personal goal is to watch all the like Why We Fights. That's what I want to do because I love Capra. Yeah. Well, and that's so Capra was going to kind of be my answer. And just like, I think the first why we fight is super effective. Um, and, but, and, and that was, you know, that was not a home front sort of, that was a get the boys, get the boys rallied up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was a different, uh, sort of, uh, agenda than a lot of the others. Well, and I'm going to put my advertising man cap on right now is, Frank Kappa more than the others. The other guys were trying to make compelling documentaries within the context of what they had just seen and what they had just shot. Mm-hmm. Frank Kappa was thinking big picture. And so Why We Fight was the brand. Mm-hmm. I mean, he created a brand called Why We Fight. And that's just mm-hmm. such a an enticing, provocative phrase. Yeah. The, and, and that was his overarching I, idea behind his documentaries. I, I also think Capra was trying to prove something to himself almost about his own identity. Like, I, I, I feel like there is something in the way that because I, I think he was aware that he was a little wishy-washy and and so this was his opportunity to prove like uh okay i am an american i am an immigrant but i am an american um i mean you can watch his movies i always thought that one of the things that just shined through is his true pure love of the american ideals yeah and i i thought for him to take this on just made a lot of sense it was probably an easy sell but also this was the last war where it was really clear why we were fighting. 
Sure. Um, and we were attacked and all this other stuff. So clearly you didn't see Captain America Civil War <laughs> <laughs> because that was the battle lines were very clear there, sir. Thank you very much. I, I mean, this wouldn't have held up as well for some other wars. You go, oh, let's ignore that movie that says why we fought Vietnam. But, uh, but to rewind a bit, Hunter, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. Like the fact that he built this banner to put sort of everything that he did under um, it was very smart and very like, even if, even if some of them weren't like, I think the, uh, I think it's the seventh, it would, there were seven, correct? Uh, yeah, but there were five. I think from the documentary, they said the seventh one was the Japanese one that was never really released. Okay, right. Fine, right. That, that was never released, uh, but is on Netflix. Um, I haven't watched that one yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, even if they, you know, were, uh, some were better than others. You know, it's sort of like when you roll out an ad campaign, yeah. you you have to hit hard with the first one to even give it longevity. And he did that. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, that was just, for lack of better words, it was just smart. It was a smart branding campaign Yeah, is what it was. So out, outside of this documentary, I want to ask, uh, what what do you guys think of these directors? If you had, if you had to pick one. I could only and have it, one. And it um, couldn't be John Ford. It can't be John Ford. <laughs> Well, actually, here's the thing is if you're talking about an entire body of work, probably John Ford. But if you're talking about just, the, you know, it's a wonderful life. I mean, because of it's a wonderful life, Frank Capra. So I, it's difficult to answer just for that one contribution to cinema. Except I think I like Frank Capra almost as much as I like John Ford in the whole grand scheme of things. So I would say those two are tied. It, it's hard for me not to pick Capra. Capra has so many great movies. Yeah. Just just tr- just really great classics with, with Mr. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and and it happened one night. Mr. D's goes to town. You can't take it with it. It's a lot of great stuff there. It's not John Ford, but well, but but they're like I think they're the two. And you know, I've only seen uh, I think three Weiler films. I've only seen one George Stevens film, which I feel like is probably my biggest oversight. We'll, we'll in, get there in a second. In in yeah, all we'll, of this, we'll get there in a second. Um, but I I feel like Ford and Capra are sort of. They're the ones that are most identifiable as like, you know, a Capra film, you know, a Ford film. I would add to that not just, you know, a Ford film, you know, a Capra film. Those two are the most uh, responsible for articulating and in many ways creating the Amer- America's vision of itself in the 20th and, century. And an iconography. They are, really they, are, they are, they're as, as great as those other three are. Capra and for as much as any directors, perhaps even more so, are mythologists. They sure. created the American mythology. I, I, I would say Houston to an extent as well. But I, I, think, I was about to come defend Houston. So but, you, but you I, go ahead, Chris. Well, I, I would say Houston as well. But at the same time, he's a little more prickly in the mythology. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, um, the Maltese Falcon certainly invented the the noir genre and the gumshoe in many ways, and so that's that. I mean, that's a good point. That's but the Western is bigger than that. The 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 little guy fighting against the big guy is bigger than that. The mm-hmm. gumshoe it's it's important part of the mythology, but it's not something that I think applies to all of us the way Capra and Ford do. Yeah. Did you guys see Treasure Sierra Madre or yes. Largo or African yes. Queen or yes. any, any of those fantastic movies? I, I mean, I, it's it's hard to just throw him in that second tier. I get he's there, but man, he's got some great ones too. I wouldn't even argue that it's second tier. It's just it's different. Like it's the 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 thing is is that Capra and Ford are so easily identifiable. 
You can, yeah, you can be the greatest director. You can be one of the greatest directors to ever live, and you're still not necessarily on Ford and Capra's level. No, it, no. it's well, and it's definitive. Yeah, like that's that's the thing about. Whereas, like, I, I think Houston does a lot of different things throughout his uh, throughout his career, and he's he's maybe not quite Howard Hawks in that, but mm-hmm. in that same sort of vein, where do a little bit of this, do a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Like he he sort of moves around more. That said, if I were to just want to listen to one of them talk. The most would probably be Houston. <laughs> oh yeah, like he. Where, where is where's his biopic, man? No, well, his voice that. Well, I then mm. that was Jimmy Stewartish, but yeah, I mean, but his voice, <laughs> I love his voice, John Houston's voice. Well, it's, and it's that accent that doesn't exist anymore. That's like the. It's it's not quite the like radio announcer, of the early, yeah, yeah, but it's it's that sort of like you don't you just don't hear a voice like that anymore. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. No, um, no, it's pretty spectacular. Um, Jake and I were talking a little bit about this off mic. Did it bother anyone as much as, as much as I liked it? And I assume you guys liked the best days of our lives. Did anyone think it was getting overrated by this documentary? <laughs> yeah. I, like I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. I thought it was really good. Uh, and still watching, listening to them talk about it in this, I was like, Oh, I want to see that version. They really liked it. <laughs> yeah, it was it was granted the same reverence of it as "It's a Wonderful Life," and I felt that was inappropriate. I, I, but how much is, of that is cultural? I think I think they honestly missed the mark on what the best years of our lives represents, and that's a sort of melancholy shift in Weiler. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it to me the best years of our lives has always represented him and his change as much as anything. And they, they touched on that a little bit, but that wasn't their focus. And so I, I feel like it was almost like a misdirect in, in their, their point. They were, yeah, they were just, it, it was mm-hmm. essentially, well, we need to give each of these directors a movie to talk about. And Spielberg and that, really likes and this Spielberg movie. Really so, like, yeah, so we'll just talk yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, all right. I, I said, we were going to talk about this. So now we are Chris and Jake. Both of you are light on your George Stevens front. What up? What's up with that? Man, I really, really, really like the only George Stevens I have seen is A Place in the Sun. Mm-hmm. Which is a fine choice. Which is incredible. And honestly, after seeing it, I was like, oh, I need to see more George Stevens. After seeing this, I I realize how like light that like or, or how uh, like that was an understatement. Mm-hmm. Like I am really fascinated by pre-World War II George Stevens and his sort of comedic screwball nature. Yeah, this um, made me want to see some 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 pre some some of that comedy they talked about him yeah, being a master of. Yeah, but I'm, then but then I also know I need to see Shane. I need to see like I no, don't <laughs> and, and yeah, okay, well there you go. I was gonna I was gonna do the lead up, but uh-huh. Jake, you don't like Shane. Um how how does it feel knowing you're wrong about something and still defending it? <sighs> Can can we do like a war, um, a civil war with like Shane and you know any other movie so I can pick the other one? <laughs> what is the other one going to be? Chris has to defend Rocky, and you have to defend Shane. Is what we need to do. <laughs> Wait, def- to defend our opinions on them. <laughs> find something. Find something good about them. Something that you like. Did it make you itchy? Is that what? it? <laughs> <laughs> well, what is on the tier with Shane? Is it is the Searchers on the tier with Shane? No, the Searchers is better, but I would say that Shane is my Sh- darling Sh- Clementine level. Yeah, yeah, I'd put it there. Yeah, see that's yeah, just, uh, that that ending with the kid running after him and hey, shouting Shane. How do you not? 
how does that not get a little lump in your throat? Well, now I don't need to see <sighs> it. Yeah, thanks, I Hunter. Thanks, Hunter. Wow. I, I, th- I think, I, wasn't there a movie earlier this year that referenced Shane a bunch? Uh, they all referenced Shane. The Dark Knight referenced Shane. The ending whenever he's running after mm-hmm. Batman. That gave me a lump mm-hmm. in my throat. I love it. It's great. That's the only good part of the movie is the ending. I just, <laughs> and it's partly because it was over after. Well, I didn't like Shane. Okay, well, Chris needs to see Shane just to just to bring balance to the force. Um, and then <laughs> you need to see um, The Place in the Sun, and then both of you need to watch Giant. Because okay. Giant yeah. is a know, strange yeah. movie. I have never seen a, I can't believe I'm admitting this on, on the show. I have never seen a James Dean movie. Overrated. I've only seen East of Eden. Overrated. James Dean's overrated? I think so. I, I, from maybe from, maybe from a cultural standpoint, but as far as just the, what he's doing, the work he's doing, I'm, I'm doesn't do anything for me. Joseph Kessner loved James Dean. I always like, I always felt bad entering his office knowing that I had never seen Well, mind you, he was probably a kid and a teenager, a Mm -hmm. kid in the 1950s. So there you go. Fair. Yeah. If the hottest rising star and cultural icon makes three movies and dies, I mean, alive at the time is a big reason you're going to think it was. Yeah. I mean, that's why I defend the Biebs. (laughs) <laughs> for, that, for that very reason alright well once we start talking about Justin Bieber that means we have absolutely nothing more to say but Chris um, this is a three hour documentary Yeah. what would you recommend to consume while watching three hours worth of content I've got a recommendation this is technically a beer that I've recommended before but it is an, it is an annual beer and each batch is a little bit different and you can only get it around April. So I feel like I need to put out the call. Like you should, if you haven't already picked up your KBS Kentucky breakfast out from founders brewing company in Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, you should be heading out to the liquor store now to get it. Um, KBS is a delectable, uh, very rich chocolatey stout that uh, this year's batch is clocking at 11.8% ABV uh, and 70 IBU, but it's, as as this rich stout like that uh that bitterness is kind of hidden back deep in it it's it's a very complex beer but i think i think this high abv is going to help you get through the doldrums of the first hour and a half to 2 hours of this okay so this interests me so it's very bitter but it has its bitterness buried underneath so it's kind of like one of these guys coming back from war <laughs> kind of perhaps <laughs> like interesting it's, it's I, and and that's the thing with like a, a lot of imperial stouts actually do have a pretty high bitterness it's just that there's there's a whole lot of complexity going on on top of that that uh, you're not going to you're not going to really uh, notice it as much like you would a, a IPA that is just straight clean sharp um, hops. Mm-hmm. Founders describes this as an imperial stout brewed on a massive amount of coffee and chocolates, then cave aged in oak bourbon barrels for an entire year. And that is where like, so each year it has a different ABV. I think last year there were two versions. One was coming in at 12 point something and then one at 11 point something. This is uh, a little bit lower than the, the version that came to Oklahoma last year, but um, still great, still very good. I actually, uh, this is a beer that I like to stock up on and kind of compare year to year. So I've got some uh, 2016s in my fridge and some 2017s. Chris, do you have a beer cellar? I I more or less have a beer cellar. I have I have a fridge that is dedicated exclusively to beer because my wife got tired of me stocking <laughs> beer, like like keeping stuff that I I want to you know kind of 
age and and compare and 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 taste uh, in in the bottom of the fridge. I just Doesn't like it to go pl- stale or bad after a while. It it can it can go flat. It can go. I mean, and there's like there are certain beers that you want like something that's like dry hopped. You're gonna want to drink more or less right away because that's going to fall off of it very quickly. Um, but an imperial stout, it's uh, they're particularly you know because they are so boozy and so rich and chocolatey. A lot of them. Um, there's there's an interesting sort of shift in them, and and one that's barrel aged even more. Uh, I find that this this KBS like if you give it a year and compare it, like you get a lot of the chocolatey flavor on on the fresher one. You get a lot more of that oaky bite um, that that you can taste in one that's been aged a bit. So it's uh, I mean yeah if you if you kept one for ten years, sure it's going to go flat and probably taste terrible. All right, Chris. Two questions. Who among these directors would you most like to share a beer with? Yeah, it's well, I was going to say it's almost certainly Ford, just because like I think you get Ford sauced and like he's a totally he's, different guy. He's well, but he's also going to like take the he barely has a filter with insults. Mm-hmm. I just I would love to see where where he goes from there. And he was Irish AF. Yeah. So yeah. he would be down for it. What about you, Jake? Well, I don't drink, so it couldn't be Ford because he would belittle my manhood. (laughs) (laughs) So it Um, has to be Ford then? (laughs) It it has to be Ford. No, it's going to be Capra. I feel like me and Capra could could enjoy, like, I I would have a root beer and he would, I I, I don't know, tell me about how much he loves America. See, neither one of you gave the answer, which I feel is obvious, which is John Huston. Well, you didn't let me finish. I was going to say, I was going to say, I was going to say (laughs) it's obvious, but I think, I think actually John Huston is the one that I would, I would find more compelling in like a, because I think, I think you could spend the entire evening like smoking cigars and drinking booze with him and it would be yeah but then he would sleep with your wife (laughs) who cares (laughs) (laughs) the answer is i hope he does (laughs) says the guy who doesn't have a wife potentially well potentially you could raise john euston's progeny (laughs) i mean i was getting ready to say do you know how rare that would be but it's probably not that rare there are probably a lot of people raising little john euston not as many as raising little uh, warren Beatty's. no absolutely not okay and then which of these guys do you think uh would be a beer guy i don't like it's it's tough like i don't think capra is uh george stevens might be but he would be like a no nonsense like maybe he's drinking anchor steam or something Mm -hmm. Um, it maybe, I mean, being Irish, maybe it is Ford, but maybe Ford's just maybe. a straight whiskey guy. Yeah, Ford and Houston are, are straight liquor. Um, yeah. I would say maybe Weiler. It's probably gotta be Weiler, right? Yeah, I think, cause Weiler, he was an everyman. But he's a Frenchman. What, uh, he wasn't French, he was from, uh, was it, was it, I thought it was, uh. I'm almost, I'm almost let's, positive let's, Weiler's French. Let me Google that for you. German Empire, but present day France. Okay, the answer is both. <laughs> The, is he German or is he French? The answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> well, in the, and I think even in in the uh, because it was it was uh, it, it was Hemingway's brother who took him to his little they said French village. Uh, and and then what a they, weird story that was in this documentary. What a by the great way. what a, this this thing needed more of that. Yeah. Um, and, and then Bob Hemingway took him. Like just some other Hemingway you don't know about. The other Hemingway, yeah. Um, But yeah, so it's we're both kind of right, I guess. But uh, I'm I'm gonna pretend like I'm correct. Five Came Back is currently streaming on Netflix. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. 
Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around. We'll be back after the break with Jake's recap of Week 7 in the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League spring season. Now it's time for the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League Recap. Each week, Chris and I compete with you, the listeners, in a fantasy sports-style game to best spend a thousand imaginary bucks to fill a virtual eight-screen cineplex with real-world movies where the weekend box office determines the winner. If you aren't already playing along, it's never too late to join. Visit wsampod.com slash fantasymovieleague to sign up and get all the details. Let's dive into our recap of week seven of the spring season. You know a big movie is dropping when you start seeing the Friday, Saturday, Sunday split messages on the FML website. Yep. And to be honest, I saw them this week before I could remember what movie was the big release. Maybe not a great sign for the movie or not a great sign for my memory. But it was the latest installment of that Hot Rod Racing franchise that, with The Rock, Vin Diesel, and Jason Statham, proves that speed makes you go bald. The F8 of the Furious. I forgot Jason Statham was in these. I've only seen like three and a half of these eight movies. Yeah, I think if you're buff and bald and can drive a car, you're in this movie. I I think that's the three requirements to be in this movie. I mean, Statham and The Rock are better than Diesel, though. So maybe maybe I need to see this. Look, of all the roles that Vin Diesel plays, this is this... This is kind of his thing. This I'll always associate him with the one Fast and Furious movie I saw. But if you ask him, he would say his thing is the Riddick movies because he. I actually think he appeared in uh, Tokyo Drift for the rights of the Chronicles of Riddick, Riddick franchise or something like that. Like he he loved it that much because at that time I think w- did they only have Pitch Black. Or had they made the Chronicles of Riddick movie? I think they just made the first one. I think they just okay. made Pitch Black. Um, so he's made at least two after that. Anyway, he you know he's a big like D and D nerd, and he's really into fantasy and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think if if he had his way, that would be the thing that he is most known for. Uh, probably so. Also, I liked Triple X, but we should probably move on from that. We should move on. Yeah. So, could the Easter box office of this blockbuster live up to the car race meets submarine chase promise of its trailer? 
Uh, and more importantly for us, would one of its daily takes be enough to overcome returning champ Boss Baby at its new low, low price of 201 bucks? That's really not that low, though, Jake. I, I know it's not, but compared to the prices that were on all the splits, it, it was your other option. I mean, that was your really only other anchor you could have went Solid with. Solid deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, four contenders finished within $2,000 per bucks of Best Picture. The Boss Baby just barely nosed out the case for Christ for Best Performer. And if my math is right, the case for Christ needed just $31,000 more at the box office to take that Best Performer $2 million bonus, which really isn't that much. Wow. I had no idea it was that close. I know. That's like if if one megachurch had screened the movie, you would have had, you had yeah. your Best Performer right there. Yeah. Yeah. But instead, we end up with four Boss Babies, one Smurfs the Lost Village, two Get Out, and one screen of the space movie Life. Which I did not see. I don't know who's still seeing that movie. That had to be just a filler. I mean, I think Life made only like six hundred thousand dollars. It, it was it was week. just uh, better than a blank screen. I I know because I had I think two of them to fill out Ooh. my my trying to use as many bucks as possible. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. But uh, I don't know. It was a tough week though. I mean, only forty five users found the perfect Cineplex. And Cineplex Lost in Transnathan took home its first victory in the Midnight Warrior League. He didn't jump to first, but Steve, the lost FMLer, did take that big leap to dethrone former King of the Hill John Cineplex. The worst part is that John Cineplex took a big risk this week playing one Friday F Fate of the Furious and seven screens of the Case for Christ, which was projected on Sunday to be the perfect Cineplex because the race was too close to call. So... Tough luck. Uh, but as for week eight, we now have more new movies than I can recap in one sentence. But I'm going to try to at least get their names in. We have Unforgettable Born in China, The Lost City of Zed, Free Fire, Phoenix Forgotten, and The Promise. Two things I'd like to point out here. It sounds like you you just mentioned a movie called Unforgettable Born in China. Is this... I, I know uh, Matt Damon's already made a movie in China. Is, not, is this now Jason... Jason Bourne in China? Is that yes. What, what the weird part ahead? of that is they released the sequel at the same time, which is Free Fire Phoenix Forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing that I wanted to point out is that you called it Lost City of Zed. I uh, applaud you for that. Uh, I, 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 I did my research a little bit. And by that, I mean, you told me in chat that it wasn't the Lost City of Z. I don't know if I did. Huh. But no, the, I mean, in the trailer, like everyone says Zed, although I'm pretty sure the author is American. So he would call it Lost City of Z of the book this is based on, but whatever. I don't know. My real question for you is, will you be seeing a single one of these films? And more importantly for this segment, will any of these films be seeing your Cineplex? Um, I, we, we have discussed some of this in chat. I do want to see Lost City of Zed. Um, I know you think it looks like it could be bad. It looks... it. There was a free screening of it I could have went to, one of those preview screening things, and I was like, I don't know about this one. Yeah, no, I, I get that. Like, the trailer the trailer is difficult to tell which way it's going to go. I've read a few a few solid reviews by critics I, I like. And then it's also, it's James Gray who did, you know, he did The Im Immigrant, Two Lovers. Uh, we Own the Night wasn't great, but it was, I, I, I think he does really well with, with actors. Um, I'm, I'm interested in it, and Charlie Hunnam doesn't look terrible at it. Look, it it didn't. It's not that I'm I, I'm turned off totally by the trailer, but it's going to take somebody I know 
liking the movie to get me to watch it. It's just one of those that isn't high enough on my radar to to pop yeah. into. Well, if I if I seen. see it and I like it, I will recommend it to you. I'll All let right. you know. And if I see the one movie I'm excited to see, which is Free Fire, I'll let you know because that movie looks like a ton of fun. I want to see Free Fire too, but I don't think it's playing here. No, it's playing in Tulsa. I looked. It's uh, is it? Yeah, at least Thursday it's going to play. Uh, I think that's the preview screening. Nothing in Baton Rouge though. Been been a while since I've been out to a movie. I might have to do that. Look, I, I feel like you're going to get your money's worth because that one looks like one of those little. Probably like a low-budget concept, really fun action movie. Yeah, I'm going to use my Free Fire free pass to uh, get out this weekend, maybe. Oh, man. A, f- a Free Fire free pass, and you're not going to use your free pass on Phoenix Forgotten? I don't even know what that is. Is that is that one movie, or is that two movies? Oh, that is one movie, and so I have to write my article tomorrow. I have no clue what this one is. Is this another one of them X-Men spinoff movies? <laughs> Yes, but they they forgot about Phoenix. So, uh, no the the uh, the plot synopsis is twenty years after three teenagers disappeared in the wake of mysterious lights appearing above Phoenix, Arizona. Unseen footage from that night has been discovered, chronicling the final hours of their. Fa- I'm not interested in this. No, that sounds awful. Born in China is like a panda nature documentary. Oh, I've seen a trailer for this. Yeah, it's a Disney movie, right? Uh huh. And yeah. I, I think it's one of those that's going to end up in a lot of like uh, IMAX or Disney XD or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, screens. Unforgettable is the title dispute movie, apparently, with uh, Catherine Heigl's name appearing really weirdly off-centered in the top line. Looks like a graphic designer protested her con- contract. Uh, this The trailer for this movie looks like a thousand movies and nothing at all. Yeah. Here's, here's the thing. I don't believe in this movie but it is heading up my cineplex this week is it okay yeah, i've got i've got five of these oh my god i'm i'm not touching it i if i had to guess what that is based on the one trailer i saw it's like katherine heigl is bitter she was too hard to work with and didn't get cast in gone girl <laughs> it's like i want to be crazy in a movie not just crazy in real life okay we can we can see what we can do <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't know. It's one of those movies that seems just so like, why would this be made to me that I'm like, oh, maybe there's an audience for this. That's 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 my feeling is like my gut says, no, absolutely not. So my mind says, well, maybe. So the last movie in this list, I, I did not even know was coming out. I, I don't know anything about it. It's The Promise and it's starring Christian Bale and Oscar Isaac. What? Yeah. What? Uh, it. Set during the last days of the Ottoman Empire, The Promise follows a love triangle between Michael, a brilliant medical student, the beautiful and sophisticated Anna, and Chris, a renowned American journalist based in Paris. What? Yeah. What? Are you wetting that I haven't heard of it? No, I'm wetting what what the what is this? Yeah, I know. Uh, the, The director wrote Hotel Rwanda and In the Name of the Father, and this movie, and apparently has directed it as well. Huh. So it's uh no, I'm not gonna see this. Yeah, not gonna see this one. Yeah, so he directed Ro- Hotel Rwanda, so there is that. Uh I almost said Rotel Hawanda, which is a, a much different thing involving some spicy tomatoes. Yeah. Pretty tasty though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh so so but you do know what you're doing with the with Unforgettable. What are you filling out your Cineplex? Well, with? I've got five of that, and then I've got a Smurfs and two Free Fires. Okay. That and, and you want to know how many bucks I have left? 
Uh, I can't take a guess. Is it zero bucks? It's zero bucks. I uh, was I was gonna I was gonna give you a hint and say that it starts with a Z. <laughs> I like that. I I am going big on the Fs this this week. I'm doing Fate of the Furious, Free Fire, Free Fire, Free Fire, Free Fire, Free Fire, and then Get Out in the Case for Christ. They're not all F movies. You can't just have every one. Right. Uh, so you're you're really banging on Free Fire. See, I think Free Fire is going to be a sleeper. I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna be. I don't know. I I'm not sure it's gonna do super well in theaters. I mean, it's. And it's a it's a hard R sort of super violent. Looks like it's it's also going to be super uh, profane. Look, but a lot of fun. I don't think I've ever said the lineup that I ended up with on the podcast because we record early in the week, and you in this game you really can't tell until Thursday or Friday morning what is going to be a realistic play. There's no screen counts if Free unless, Fire ends Jake, up on a bunch. Hmm? Unless unless. You go with your gut and you say, oh, I found one that has zero bucks left. That's a winner. Unless you go with your gut and say, I found one that has zero bucks left and I have a small child and therefore we'll do no more research. Yep. Yeah, I I, kinda, I, I get that one. But right. if you still need more FML in your life, catch my weekly recaps and predictions each week on the War Starts at Midnight blog. And if you've got a hot take for the next Perfect Cineplex, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at WSAM Pod. Stick around for our really rad recommendations coming up next. They all came from different schools, but they were all the Tigers. Most of them were quitters, but a few were fighters. Start to get a little bit proud of where you're from. You should plan to lose a muscle that is sweeter when you win. guys it is time for really rad recommendation once again hunter since you are gracing us with your presence which doesn't often happen i will uh, i'll let you go first what do you have to recommend this week well i mentioned earlier that if i could sum up my issues with five came back overall it's that it was more of a netflix documentary than an hbo documentary mm-hmm. so i'm going to recommend an hbo documentary oh, lovely. um it recently came out it is bright lights starring carrie fisher and debbie reynolds and really there's not a whole lot more to say about it that isn't already there in the title it was they started filming in or I believe early last year, something like that. She was she was uh, filming Star Wars at the time. So I'm not sure that timeline. But anyway, it, it added it. They were making this documentary anyway. And then since both of their passing late last year, it had an extra bit of. Yeah, I don't want to, the word sentimentality has kind of been confiscated, but it, it has it has sentimentality as a consequence of that. Anyway, they are just two very, very fascinating women beyond just their celebrity in fact their celebrity is probably the most 
the least interesting part about them. So um, I could go into it, but it's better that you just watch it yourself and just see these two very, very different people, but people who not even beyond just the mother-daughter bond clearly very much enjoyed each other's company and loved each other. Um, so if you, it's, uh, it's just a, a wonderful documentary. It's on HBO. It's bright lights, Carrie Fisher, Debbie Reynolds. Check it out. Great. Jake, what do you have? Well, uh, five came back, talked about American filmmakers for the most part and how they handled the second world war. But I wanted to, to showcase a film coming from, uh, over the pond in England. So, uh, I went with Palin Pressburgers. You want to guess Chris? Uh, it can't be the life and death of Colonel Blimp, I would assume. So no, because that's off limits, but I wanted to get as close to that as I could. So I went with a matter of life and death, AKA stairway to heaven. Have you seen this one, Chris? I have, and it's great presented in color and black and white, uh, starring David Niven, Kim Hunter and the great Roger Livesey. Um, it is the story of a, a, it's an American pilot who shot down over Britain. That's how it goes. Right, Chris? Uh, I believe that's correct. Yeah. Uh, but it is about England and America having to get along if they want to win this war. And, uh, it, it also has this great existential, uh, trial in heaven. It, it's really good. And I don't want to say too, too much about it, but I think it really is a, a must see in their library. Yeah. And, uh, luckily for you, it is available for free on YouTube or, uh, you can buy it on DVD, uh, on Amazon prime for a mere five ninety nine, or probably find it at your local public library. I think by for free on YouTube, you mean it is currently on YouTube. Well, yeah. Cause I was just getting ready to say, yeah. I mean, wh- within the next five minutes, is it, it going to still be free on yeah. YouTube? The, when I searched it five minutes ago, it was for free yeah. on YouTube. Search, search so. it on YouTube. If it's there and it doesn't have like a crazy, uh, 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 vignette around it and, and all the words or like it's mirrored flipped. and flipped yeah. upside down. And yeah. Then maybe watch it, but definitely like see it in the best possible quality you can. Cause it's gorgeous. I'm, I'm waiting for this to get a criterion release. Why does it not have one yet? I cannot believe it doesn't. I, I thought it did. And then I, I looked it up and no, like it, I, I don't know. It could be, it could be a distribution thing. I don't know. Maybe I, I expect it to happen at some point. They, they have a lot of their other stuff. But why watch it on Criterion when you can watch it on YouTube for free, right? I mean, that's probably what Criterion's thinking. That's what Genius yeah, they, films. They, that's they, why they're they not stay doing up at it. night shaking in their boots about free YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so uh, Chris, I'm glad I went first and could snag that Pal and Pressburger recommendation. Uh, so, what do you have? Well, Jake, uh, I too have a Pal and Pressburger recommendation, but <sighs> I'm gonna. I, I think you have the better film, but uh, here's the thing: mine came first. It was, oh, really? yeah, and it, it was not the first uh, pairing of Pal and Pressburger. It was the second. Uh, and this is a film that was, like yours, has two titles. In Britain, it was known as Contraband. In America, it got the much better title that I actually, I think Michael Powell even said that he thought it was a much better title, Blackout. Uh, this film came out in 1939, a year after their first collaboration, which was The Spy in Black. And it reunited the stars of that film, Conrad Veidt and Valerie Hobson. And this is the story of it's it's a fairly small story, and it's a it's certainly a patriotic pop propaganda sort of um, sort of film. Um, it's about uh, it's it sort of I'd probably put it in the realm of something like uh, uh, the foreign correspondent or saboteur or. Um, a lot of those uh, sort of on the run 
um, uh, movies. It doesn't quite go into the, the like, oh my gosh, all of these people are Nazis, but it has a little bit of that. Um, and the, the thing that really shines about this, I would say maybe the first 20 minutes is a little, a little bit wonky. Um, but it's, uh, it starts out, uh, Vite is a, uh, cargo ship captain and, uh, his, basically his ship gets picked up, uh, by, uh, British patrol and they say, mm, things might not be, it looks like you might have some contraband. Let's, let's take you in the port, find out. Um, and, and that's really like that part's a little shifty, but once they get into, uh, England, that's where it really kind of takes off the title. The American title blackout comes from the fact that most of this film takes place at night. And so it's shot in a lot of darkness and silhouette and, and, and shadow, which is really beautiful. But I feel like this is a film that, um, needs, this is also not on criterion. It, it would be massively improved by a nice criterion restoration where you can really, really see everything come out, um, in it. Um, unlike the spy in black, which is sort of a, a more straight, uh, sort of noir propaganda film. This actually has a lot of comedy to it. That's the other thing that, that really sings with it. There's a lot of jokes, a lot of light on their feet sort of jokes. Um, and which is something that you kind of come to expect in Pal Pressburger as their, um, as you see their, uh, the, the more known films in their career, something like, uh, a matter of life and death, life and life and death of Colonel Blimp, the red shoes, um, uh, that sort of thing. It's, and, and here's the other thing. I think it's clocking in at like 85 minutes or something. So this is a, this is a tight under 90 minute film. Um, quite a lot of fun currently available to stream on Fandor. Um, if you, if you have that service, check it out there. Um, or you can rent it pretty much anywhere else or see if you can find it at your uh, local library. Fascinating. I was wondering if either one of you was going to recommend Triumph of the Will and if that was going to just be awkward for all of us. I have not seen it. I did notice that it too is on YouTube. And um, I, I, you know, just from a pure like what cinema is capable of, I've always been interested. For, in, no, from what I've in, seen, it's uh, it's uh, compelling as hell. You know yeah. what I mean? And that's that's probably why it worked unfortunately yeah uh, well, i want to see it purely for cinematic reasons as well but there's there's not an incognito mode strong enough to uh <laughs> to let me pull that video up on a computer these days <laughs> do it at work yeah no oh, problem yeah just that's go, the right idea yeah just go to a coffee hey Jake, shop are you are, is that gonna be done at, uh oh you're watching triumph of the will and i love it that they know what it is too <laughs> are you watching nazi propaganda again jake Okay, well, I think that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. You can check us out online at warstartsmidnight.com for show notes, fantasy movie league recaps, and a lot more. Or say hello on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSANpod. If you enjoy the show, rate and subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits... Well, go ahead and tell us everything that we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if you're a narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. And shout out to Bo Jennings and the Tigers for the featured music on this week's show. 
Find more at bojennings.bandcamp.com. We'll be back in another fortnight when Collider Deputy Editor Adam Chitwood drops by the War Bunker for a review of his personal war crime. It's a Western from 1959 starring John Wayne, Deed Martin, and Ricky Nelson. And if you haven't guessed it by now, it's probably a war crime for you, too. I'm, of course, referring to arguably the greatest Western ever directed by Howard Hawks, Rio Bravo. Check it out and join us next time. Thanks for listening, folks. This damn war. Kill him. How have we never named a segment the Wehrmacht? That's my real question. I don't know what that is. It's the German word for war machine. The German oh. Wehrmacht. We got it. We got ourselves a Dan Carlin listener here. <laughs> I just want him to. I just want him to describe a documentary like uh, these directors <laughs> went over to Europe. Just, just imagine the state of mind that these guys had to be in. They had been in Hollywood. Just, it's all detail about their life. He was going to yeah. tell this story, and it would start with the immigration story of Weiler, but also why he wanted to immigrate, and also why Europe's landmass is shaped like it is.